Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not... You're breaking off quite badly. Hello. Now, I know this is meant to be a pub lock-in rather than a podcast about the news, and God knows I wish we were at the pub. I wish all of us were. But these are extraordinary times we're living through, and it's perverse to ignore that fact. So I wanted to record some off-script episodes which we'll be putting out alongside our regular chats. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too. We're talking to one of the cleverest men in the country today. Jonathan Sumption is both one of the finest historians in Britain and also one of its best lawyers. He was a member of the Supreme Court until he reached the age of compulsory retirement a couple of years ago. But that hasn't brought his silence. We can't meet in a pub because Boris Johnson says we can't. And that, the way this government is handling the coronavirus pandemic, has him worried. The other day he made a speech in Cambridge which gave the government both barrels. He thinks that Boris and his pals are playing fast and loose with the law and that meekly accepting rules laid out by Downing Street has us all walking blindly into something like totalitarianism. You might be wondering why you haven't heard much about this speech. Well, I'm sorry to say that the BBC has largely ignored it. Now, Jonathan, this country's been through plenty of crises. What is it about this one that bothers you? What bothers me about this one is the degree of public acceptance of the... Um, totalitarian instincts of the government. Uh, that, I think, is new. Uh, and it is, I think, very disturbing because it suggests a completely different model in the relations between the state and citizens to the one which we have uh, got used to over a very long time. Um, and the truth is... The government rarely forgets things that empower it, and what it's discovered is that fear is one of the things that empower it. I, I think we are. I think the consequences of, of this crisis for future attitudes to the state are, are very disturbing. So, members of Parliament whose job it is to scrutinise the government and who are well paid for doing so 
have just nodded through a set of measures you consider to be constitutionally disturbing. Were you surprised they've been so supine? I wasn't surprised because uh, I think a great deal depends on the position of the Labour Party. Um, both parties, both the government and the opposition, are running scared of public opinion. I don't think that their analysis of public opinion is necessarily correct, uh, but I think that the problem is that what you have here is an essentially political issue. It's not a scientific issue. It's not an economic issue. It's both. And what is required is to weigh uh, all the various scientific, economic and social factors up. Now, that is necessarily a, a political value judgment that has to be made. Now, the moment that it becomes a political decision, which this one inevitably is, uh, then you find that most politicians uh, will not ask themselves what's in the public interest. What they will ask themselves is, what are we most likely to be criticised for? Some of them will kid themselves that it's the same thing, but actually it's very different. Now, there are clearly politicians with enough courage to buck that tendency, but we haven't seen many of them around in the last few months. Well, who's ever voted for you? Nobody's voted for me, but that doesn't mean I can't comment on it. You don't need to be elected by anyone to have an opinion or to express it. But you're a big-shot intellectual and a respected lawyer. Of course, you weren't speaking for the Supreme Court, but you know you get listened to. Within quite narrow limits, yes. Um, I mean, I made it clear in my wreath lectures what I thought were the permissible limits of judicial intervention into public life. My view on that is not necessarily the same as that of all of my former colleagues or indeed of lawyers generally. When someone with your credentials gets up and says the sort of things you've said in public, I would think that some of our elected representatives would take notice. Your speech was delivered on the 27th of October. Only a week later, on November the 4th, Parliament voted on the second lockdown and a mere 38 members voted against it. Clearly they weren't listening to you, were they? Well, I do it because I hope that they will. Um, and I think that I may well have uh, had some influence on the minority of MPs who feel uncomfortable about this and don't feel uh, that a quest for short-term uh, plaudits in the polls is a good enough reason for doing something different. Um, but I think that my impact on public opinion as a whole has been very small. You've called the lockdown measures the most significant interference with personal freedom in the history of this country. They are depressing, but that is over-egging it a bit, isn't it? No, not at all. The comparison that's normally made is, in, uh, is with wartime, but we didn't do this sort of thing even in wartime. There is no precedent for putting the entire population under house arrest, with exceptions entirely dependent on the choices of ministers. You're also concerned about the police, aren't you? I think the behaviour of the police has varied. The behaviour of some police forces at the outset of the first lockdown was, I think, outrageous. Uh, they jumped the gun, they started enforcing uh, the Prime Minister's guidance as if it was the law, uh, they took action before any regulations had been made, which they weren't entitled to take. Uh, even after the regulations had been made, 
they uh, took a view about what was allowed and what was not allowed, which was simply uh, had no basis at all. Uh, but I think that a good deal of order was brought into the situation in April when the College of Policing produced guidelines on what people were allowed to do and what they weren't. So we then had an end of all that nonsense about not allowing people to sit on a park bench uh, while they were uh, supposed to be exercising or not allowing them to walk in the Derbyshire fells. Um, so I think that the, I mean, the, the police have a difficult position in that they are uh, being asked to um, enforce some extremely vague regulations. Uh, they are also being asked uh, to do it in circumstances where the government is giving so-called guidance that goes way beyond the regulations, but without, in fact, making it clear that that's what they're doing. The government often speaks as if its advice was law, uh, which it isn't. Uh, I think that the police should know better than that, and I think that since the middle of April they have known better. If the basis for the lockdown is as flimsy as you say, what would qualify as substantial enough? Is this just a lawyer's quibble, or is there something the rest of us might go along with? Well, I think the problem is that most of the steps that the government has taken, in my opinion, are not authorised by the Public Health Control of Disease Act of 1984, which is the statute under which they were, um, uh, those regulations were made. The government does have power to do everything that it has done, but only under a different statute, the Civil Contingencies Act. Now, you might think, well, this is a sort of pettifogging legal point. What's it matter? Actually, it matters quite a lot because um, the Civil Contingencies Act authorises government by decree of the sort we've had, but only under very stringent conditions as regards parliamentary supervision. The, you, can, you have to get advance approval from Parliament uh, or approval, if it's too urgent for that, within seven days. Uh, and your approval from Parliament has to be renewed every 30 days. What is more, unusually, Parliament is allowed to amend uh, or, uh, your draft regulations or to revoke them at any time. Uh, now, uh, these are uh, very stringent conditions, and I think that it's important that they should be observed. I would agree that on past showing, it doesn't look as if, uh, even if the regulations had been made under the Civil Contingencies Act, Parliament would have turned them down. But I still think that it's a valuable exercise, because if ministers have to turn up before Parliament at regular intervals, justify what they're doing and produce evidence to support it, they are simply likely to make better decisions, less capricious, less quixotic than those that we've seen. The last time you made a song and dance, it was about Parliament being prorogued. Do you think the issues are the same? Well, uh, I don't think that the issues are that similar. Um, the point in the prorogation case uh, is that uh, the prorogation of Parliament is not a statutory power. Uh, it's a prerogative power, um, and the, the sources of law were, uh, were, were not at all clear. On the other hand, this is a much more straightforward, classic question of, of, of legal power. Nobody doubts, nobody doubted last year uh, that the government had power to prorogue Parliament uh, for certain purposes. Um, uh, the question was what purposes? In this case, the question is a different one because government has no inherent power simply as a government 
uh, to lock us down. It needs a statute for that. And if the statute that they've chosen doesn't authorise it, then that's the end of it, however necessary these steps are. That's what a lawyer might call a nice point. But we don't have a constitution, do we? We do have a constitution. It may not all be written down in one document, uh, but it exists. It consists partly of statutes. It consists partly of uh, non-legally enforceable conventions. Uh, and it consists partly of the uh, internal rules of Parliament itself, um, governing the relationship between the executive uh, and the House of Commons in particular. So we do have a constitution. Uh, it isn't a constitution whose rules are entrenched. There's, no, there's nothing that requires a two-thirds majority or a referendum before you can change it. And it does subtly change all the time, but it exists. This is a parliament whose entire raison d'etre, notionally, is taking back control, or we might say, restoring the sovereignty of parliament, whatever that is. That's what the last four years of arguments have been all about. And yet you're saying, to put it very colloquially, that the government has shat all over parliamentary sovereignty. Well, it has. Um, the, um, the Leave campaign was distinctly ambiguous about exactly who was going to take back control. They, after all, believed that the referendum was the source of all political legitimacy in the area of the EU, at any rate, uh, and to, took the view that the executive was the outfit with democratic legitimacy and not Parliament at all. That was why they were so outraged uh, when the Supreme Court uh, said that governments only exist uh, uh, courtesy of their parliamentary support. Um, so there was an, an element of pro-executive totalitarianism, I think, in the approach of, of many levers. Uh, but you're quite right uh, that um, the, the problem about um, simply relying on public support as an alternative source of legitimacy is that the public has no institutional means without Parliament of holding the government to account. So effectively, if you are directly responsible to the electorate rather than to Parliament, you are responsible to nobody except once in five years. With a few honourable exceptions, Parliament has always been an assembly of bores and pipsqueaks. Do you think this Parliament has especially let us down? Yes, I do. Uh, I, but this isn't simply a reflection on what's been happening over COVID. Uh, I think that, uh, except during the last Parliament, when divisions within both parties uh, produced a degree of fluidity that's been very uncommon in modern politics, um, uh, the executive has prevailed over Parliament for uh, a, a, a very long time, essentially because Parliament has allowed it to do so. But for many years... Uh, the standing orders uh, of the House of Commons have said, and I quote, the business uh, of the government shall take precedence at every session. And that was why uh, the decisions of Speaker Burko in the last Parliament to allow MPs to take the initiative, although in my view wholly admirable, were controversial. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So what do we need to do to give Parliament back its role? Well, the first thing that I think that we've got to do uh, is to uh, abolish the rule that the, uh, the government's business always takes precedence. It's almost unique to the UK Parliament. In almost every Parliament in the world, there's a business of the House Committee uh, which determines uh, what business goes forward. It usually will be government business, but serious opposition uh, motions or motions from the governing party which are inconsistent with the government's wishes um, can get through on that basis. In many parliaments, uh, a, a motion which attracts a minimum level of support from uh, uh, lawmakers uh, is entitled to be debated. Uh, we are almost unique uh, in allowing the government carte blanche, except for opposition debates and a handful of other minor exceptions, to determine the agenda of Parliament every day that it sits. That's the first thing that we need to do. Uh, I think that the second thing that we need to do uh, is to um, think very seriously about our electoral system. Now, I used to be a supporter of the first-past-the-post system, and I still regard it as having very many advantages. Um, but I think that uh, the extent to which um, uh, constituency parties have been taken over by small groups uh, of people representing a very narrow range of political opinion uh, means that the first-past-the-post system uh, is no longer consistent with the long-term health of our democracy. Uh, I think that we need uh, to have a wider choice of options uh, and we need to have arrangements under which compromises will take place uh, between uh, 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 parties who will be smaller, more numerous and more fragmented uh, rather than within parties because the reality is that compromise is no longer taking place within parties uh, as a result of the, uh, the narrowness of most constituency associations. Do you think the Prime Minister or his Cabinet understands the damage you allege they're doing to the Constitution? Are they autocratic or just panicking, or what? I do not think that they understand it. Uh, I think that they feel that, uh, having been elected with a substantial majority, they've been elected to do more or less what they want. Um, 
some years ago, you may remember, there was a famous um, uh, BBC lecture uh, given by Lord Hailsham in which he described our system uh, as an elective democracy. Now, I actually think that Hailsham was wrong at the time that he was speaking because what he overlooked is the way in which party policy gets formulated, which involves a uh, essentially uh, uh, the drawing up of a slate of policies that themselves represent a compromise and that are um, designed to appeal to the broadest possible range of the electorate. Now, um, I don't think that Hailsham was right because he basically didn't take into account of the way in which parties were broad churches uh, and policies emerged as a compromise between different strands of opinion and indeed between a party and the opposition parties whose clothes it is sometimes desirable to steal. So uh, it worked pragmatically. Um, the problem is that with the narrowing uh, range of modern political parties, I think that we are now moving into the uh, situation which uh, Hailsham had in mind. We are becoming an elective dictatorship. Elective dictatorship. And, uh, you know, while one can get rid of the elective dictators every five years, I don't believe that that is enough to secure either responsive government or good government. One of the problems uh, about governments who have too much power and too little accountability is that they tend to make very bad decisions. And this, the, the mechanics is, is, is absolutely straightforward. Uh, you have considerable power. The result is that you narrow the range of people whom you consult. You adopt a very non-deliberative uh, kind of decision-making. And when you narrow the range of opinion you consult, what you get is not objective advice. Uh, you get uh, uh, loyalty uh, and flattery at the expense of independence and expertise. The result is exactly the kind of thing that we have witnessed over the last six months, namely uh, government on impulse lurching from pillar to post, uh, a failure to take into account more than a really very narrow range of the relevant issues. It seems to me perfectly astonishing that the government has never had a proper cost-benefit analysis of the effects of the lockdown. That became clear uh, when um, they effectively accepted that before a parliamentary committee uh, in July. Um, what we have witnessed, whether you like the lockdown or not, and I know many people do, you cannot possibly admire uh, the way that these decisions have been taken. And these are the natural consequences of an authoritarian pattern of government, which this government has welcomed and promoted. Well, it's not new to moan about authoritarian governments. I recall people accusing Tony Blair of much the same. Boris and his pals will just shrug it off. He's got an 80-seat majority. Well, I certainly think that they need uh, to pluck up courage and they need to recognise that the way in which our constitution works is more important than the way in which we deal with any particular crisis because its effects, if not permanent, are certainly very long term. Uh, I think that it is extremely unfortunate that MPs are not prepared to get together on both sides of the House and require the Prime Minister to make his regulations under a basis which subjects them to intensive parliamentary scrutiny, because that ought to be in the interests 
of both sides, irrespective of their views on the merits of the regulations themselves. Why are our politicians being so pathetic? There are a number of reasons. Uh, it, some of it's down to personality, of course. Quite a lot of it is down to the fact uh, that the payroll vote is a very large um, part uh, of the House of Commons in particular, but in fact to some extent of both houses. Um, it's, it's about a fifth of the House uh, and uh, a much higher proportion uh, of the governing party. So uh, I think that uh, simple ambition uh, is the largest single factor. Uh, I, I also think that the way in which Parliament operates actually gives a remarkably little scope uh, to MPs uh, publicly to persuade people in the way, in a way that would make them, that would diminish them in the eyes of the public if they didn't agree. Um, this is partly down to the rules which uh, make it almost impossible to develop an argument in the time uh, that you are allocated. And at the moment, it's very much down to the social distancing, uh, which has limited the number of people who are allowed into the chamber to 50. Now, that is a really very extraordinary thing when you think about it, because what it means is that a decision uh, uh, by the parliamentary authorities and the Speaker uh, have effectively uh, meant uh, that uh, most MPs are being prevented from performing the function which they were elected to perform, uh, which is uh, to sit in the House of Commons to challenge the government uh, or to support it if they think fit. Uh, at the moment, we have what is effectively a radiophonian programme. Uh, it is a travesty of a parliament. Uh, even the largest majorities will not immunise ministers against the atmosphere created by a packed chamber of the House of Commons. It's a very potent way of communicating political disapproval, even of a government which you support. We've seen that many times in the past. We aren't seeing it now because Parliament has essentially been emasculated. It takes the view that the health of individual MPs is more important than the performance of its high constitutional calling. And that tells you something about attitudes too. What a depressing and gloomy picture you paint. I'm afraid I'm not optimistic. Well, what can be done about it? Ultimately, only a strong tide of public disapproval is going to change this. And we're not seeing that. That's, as I suggested when we started, is what makes this uh, crisis of authority uh, so much more uh, disturbing than previous ones. Why has there been so little resistance? Are we all too scared? Yes, um, I think, but I mean, fear is, is, is the key thing. And I mean, the government has persistently sought to stoke up the fear, essentially by presenting the abnormal as if it were normal, uh, uh, by the dramatic way in which they uh, introduce almost everything they say by some extremely dodgy um, uh, statistical manipulation. Um, the um, press conference which preceded the second lockdown was frankly a disgrace, uh, as in some respects those responsible have been good enough to recognise. Jonathan Sumption, thank you. That's a pleasure. There you are, Lord Sumption. And if any of you found what he said at all convincing, why don't you send this episode to your local MP? And if you don't, well, good luck to you.
You'll need it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.